KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. John Le Carre captivated audiences for six decades with more than two dozen novels about the most intricate workings of the espionage community. I really don't think any artist whether he's a writer, a painter, or anybody else. I don't think he has to explain his work beyond a certain point. But shortly before his death in 2020, David Cornwell, better known to the world by his pen name of John Le Carre, decided to explain something about his work and life to filmmaker Errol Morris for a documentary called The Pigeon Tunnel. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Errol Morris is a veteran documentary filmmaker who's tackled topics as diverse as the pet burial industry, capital punishment, hedge trimming, and the horrors of Abu Ghraib. He's interviewed lion tamers and a naked mole rat expert, as well as Stephen Hawking, Donald Rumsfeld, and Robert McNamara. I love that you not only never know what he might tackle next, but also that you never know exactly what approach he might take. For The Pigeon Tunnel, he takes on a former spy turned award-winning novelist, and the result is spectacular. Not since my dinner with Andre have I enjoyed a cinematic conversation as much as I did listening to Morris and Cornwell talk. I had the opportunity to speak with Morris about interviewing the famous author. Plus, I got to speak with Cornwell's sons, Simon and Stephen, who produced the film. I need to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to explore the Pigeon Tunnel. Maybe this is an interrogation. Maybe I am self-deceived. I don't know. But I'll answer any question you wish me to answer as truthfully as I can. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. David Cornwell's son, Simon, recalled his dad's mood heading into the making of The Pigeon Tunnel. Our, our dad, I think, prepared in some ways meticulously for combat. Maybe that was because Cornwell was a former spy and knew what an interrogation could entail. But Morris quickly disarmed his subject and put him at ease. I was going to ask you how you do feel now, but that seems silly. Errol, I feel very comfortable. I enjoy very much talking about things I haven't talked about before. I saw this prospect at my great age as something definitive. I knew that I was not going to lie, I wasn't going to fabricate. I'm not even interested in self-defense, because I really don't know what the accusation is in the air. Morris met Cornwell through mutual friends, who thought the two would get along, and they did. So well, in fact, that when Morris suggested making the documentary, Cornwell agreed. I had read that Morris described Cornwell as a kindred spirit. So I asked him, what was it about Cornwell that he connected with so well? So many, many, many things. His interest in the relationship between literature and history, 
it surprised me all through the course of making this movie, not just the interview, but the course of making the entire movie, how we had so many things in common and so many interests in common. And this connection, it's at the very heart of my film between history, personal biography, and literature, is something that fascinates me still. I can't say that everything is resolved in my mind, but I make movies so that I can think about things, and this enabled me to think about a lot of things that really interest me. It's terribly difficult to recruit for a secret service. In the end, you're looking for somebody who's a bit bad, but at the same time loyal. There's a type they were looking for in my day, and I fitted perfectly. And he hasn't given a lot of interviews. I think that's not really strictly speaking true. Well, he, look, he was 89 years old when he died. He'd given hundreds of interviews. He had written autobiographical fragments. He wrote autobiographical novels. Maybe he didn't do an interview quite like this one. I'm not the first person to ever interview David Cornwall. That just would, strictly speaking not be true. But I was going to say, what do you think made him open up to you and be willing to do an interview of this kind? Did Fog of War help in a, in some way in terms of him seeing the kind of film you could craft? He knew my movies. He liked my movies. I think that that helped. I think he liked talking to me. I know I like talking to him. I think it surprised him. There was this sort of idea that there were two interrogators in a room, but I wasn't interrogating him. I never interrogate anybody. I was interested in having a conversation and exploring various themes with him, but that's the extent of it. And that question that he asked at the very beginning, who are you? Sometimes you're a spectral figure, sometimes you're God, and sometimes you're present. I needed to know who I was talking to. Were you my friend across the fire? Were you a stranger on a bus? Who are you? I don't know who I am. I tell him I don't think I can answer the question. I don't think I can answer the question now either. I think we're always trying to figure out who we are, and we never know. Well, you make a differentiation between interrogation and conversation here, but why do you think you weren't interrogating him? When I think of an interrogation, you know, I think of a spy interrogating someone who they're in search of very specific information, um, or a cop interrogating someone suspected of a crime, hoping for some kind of confession or some kind of leading information that will help secure a conviction in a court of law, whatever. Interviews from when I first started doing them I always called it the shut the fuck up school of interviewing. Not about answering questions, about not even having questions, but being there in a position willing to listen and to engage on some level with the person you're talking to. And that itself surprised me because it's, again, he's operating from a completely different set of premises than I am. I keep hearing again and again and again that I have not pressed you hard enough about betrayal. 
I have failed in my interviewer's or interrogator's job. Well, I feel that you've got the last drop out of the sponge on that subject. But I'll answer any question you wish me to answer as truthfully as I can. Well, it seems like your films have had this kind of evolution in the sense that the early films, I'm not sure how to put this exactly, but your early films, there seemed to be kind of this disparity between you and the people you were interviewing. And with McNamara and Cornwell, it feels like you're on more kind of level ground with them and and maybe more engaged with them. I don't know. It seemed like you could be friends with them in a way that's different from some of your earlier films and some of the interviews in those films. Probably so. I mean, I I really liked him. You know, I liked talking to him. I'm very, very sorry he died. I wish he was around. I wish he could see this movie because I think, I don't know for sure, but I think he would like it. There are people that I remain friendly with after I made movies about them. Uh, I mean... Friendly with Robert McNamara, who I I really came to love. My favorite war criminal, as I describe him. He had come over our house several times for dinner, and the last time he fell, he hit his head, he was bleeding. And when I was at university, the University of Wisconsin in 1968, 69, I demonstrated against the war in Vietnam. So McNamara hits his head, he's bleeding. We're hysterical. We want to take him to the hospital immediately. He refuses. He puts a cold compress on his head. And my wife says, you know, years ago, if we had killed Robert S. McNamara, we'd all be heroes. And now we're all horrified because we've come to really like him. And, uh, and indeed, he turns out to be a really thoughtful and decent human being. And it was a privilege to know him. For the privilege, I remained friends with Stephen Hawking. And the loss of Stephen Hawking was a terrible thing. One of my very, very favorite interview subjects. And a guy who is really, really smart, really funny, really perverse. I'm really sorry he's no longer with us. How many hours of interview did you end up doing with Cornwell to create this film? Only four days, four days, probably 16, 17 hours, something like that. Could have been a lot more. And was there anything during the course of those interviews that really surprised you or that... Lots of stuff. You just weren't expecting? The fact that he's so much less cynical than I am. He really actually is a truly ethical, moral human being, believes passionately in right and wrong. Some of the best stories in the Pigeon Tunnel is about his refusal, for example, to meet with Kim Philby in Moscow. Kim Philby, who is really one of the centers of his work, one of the most notorious British traders. I was at a party given by the Union of Soviet Writers. There was a big man called Gendrik Borovik. Borovik came up to me and said, David, I uh, would like you to meet a very good friend of mine, keen admirer from your books, Kim Philby. I replied, sick to the heart as I felt, that I'm soon to have dinner with our ambassador. 
and I can't see myself having dinner with the Queen's representative one night and dinner with the Queen's traitor the next. I just thought there is such a thing as evil. So he, he's a really interesting and passionate man with really, truly interesting and passionate beliefs. I, I made movies so I could learn something, and I learned a lot from this man. It's a great experience. I'm lucky. Would you cite anything specifically that you learned or a favorite lesson? Uh, I would say that in the Pigeon Tunnel, originally it was going to be much longer. It was going to be a series. When he came to Bond as a young spy and civil servant, he found out that there were a lot of high-ranking Nazis in the German government. And he said to himself, well, wait a second, didn't we fight a war to get rid of these people? And now they're in the government? The whole second chapter of The Pigeon Tunnel is about Hans Globke, who originated the Nuremberg Laws. Many people credit the Nuremberg Laws with having opened the door to the Holocaust. So here's a guy who promulgated this anti-Semitic stuff, and now he's at the top of the government pyramid. And David, in the movie, talks about forced forgetting. And there's a kind of deep moral ambiguity, I would even say quagmire, that is at the center of much of his fiction. And what made it a pleasure to make the movie is here he is making these connections between his art, history, his personal life. It's a rich kind of mind of all kinds of interesting related material. It's a great opportunity. I'm glad he gave it to me. I came back from Berlin. I knew that I wanted to write a strong novel about the thing. It was summer. I think I worked mainly in the garden. The kids were around. I maybe started four or five in the morning. And I had this rush of blood and anger. Found, as it were, a fable that served my purposes, and that was the spy who came in from the coast. What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. And how did you decide to structure it? How did you, at what point did you decide that you wanted to use the interviews, like dramatization, archival footage? I mean, did you always kind of know it would be that mix? I did. It's always been the kitchen sink approach. And I always felt that to bring to life these parables like you know, Rudolf Hess's journey to Scotland or the Pigeon Tunnel, you had to create visual material around it. There's just no other way. And did he ever see any of the film put together? Nope. Not really, no. I'm just wondering what he would have thought. So am I. <laughs> wondering the very same thing. Was there ever a question you asked him that he didn't answer or refused to answer? Nope. He was pretty forthcoming. I did not ask him questions about his sex life. <laughs> I was interested in other stuff. My apologies. Uh what I find interesting is that he seems very forthcoming and very open about what he's talking about, and yet there's still a level of it where he seems to be spinning a tale on a certain level about his own life. And yep. 
it, it it's always that thing about facts and truth. You know, my mom would get the facts wrong, but she would say she always got the truth right. Uh-huh. I got the feeling that it's what made him so interesting as a subject. I have seen the house where I was born, but the house of my birth that I prefer is a different one, built in my imagination. But he himself was aware of how much of his stories was fabricated, confabulated, if you like. person who has an ironic connection to his own material, and I love that. He'll tell you he's looking at his father as a Monopoly man, looking out of a window in the prison. But, according to my father, none of this happened. The notion that I might have seen him in any of his prisons offended him very much. Sheer invention from start to finish, son. Anyone who knows the inside of Exeter Jail knows perfectly well you can't see the road from the cells. And I believe him. I'm wrong and he was right. He was never at that window and I never waved to him. But what's the truth? What's memory? We should find another name for the way we see past events that are still alive in us. He's a storyteller who delights in undermining his own stories as he's telling them. And it seems like we get more of you in this film, or I get more of a sense of who you are in this film really? than any other. Yeah, it feels like it. It feels more, I don't know, more conversational. Than, I mean, your films are very conversational, but I felt like this one, I don't know. It felt like there were some moments that you were less on guard, maybe, or maybe so. open. Maybe. I don't know. I'm glad. It's nice to hear. Because it, it feels like he's not interrogating you, but he does seem to question you more than some other of your subjects have. He does indeed. Do you have any particular favorite moments in it? Just something that really, for you, all came together or clicked particularly well? I love when I tell him his own story about how the dog slept on the mat is not a story. But the cat slept on the dog's mat is a story. And I say, well, I have the Le Carre version. <laughs> the cat betrayed the dog by sitting on his mat. And Le Carre without missing a beat. I think the cat was a double. Extraordinarily <laughs> fast on his feet, extraordinarily articulate, extraordinarily knowledgeable and well-read. I think another thing that bonded us is we like the same literature. He loves Thomas Mann. We talked about Thomas Mann quite a bit. We never talked about Conrad. We should have, because Conrad, to me, unlike uh, he probably would say Graham Greene, I would say Conrad is the closest thing to John le Carré, not because he wrote spy novels. He didn't just write spy novels, although he did write a spy novel, because they travel the world and their journeys became the grist for this monumental literary enterprise. It's great to be able to have this conversation with someone like him. I'm lucky. I wanted it to go on far longer. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I was going like, no, it can't be over yet. Oh, thank you. And one thing I really appreciate in all your films is the way you will hold on a shot 
kind of past the point where you think it's over. Like a lot of documentaries, you know, when they're interviewing someone, once the sentence is done, you know, there's a cut away. And you hold and you always get this extra little moment of a smile or a contemplative moment. And it just adds so much kind of like richness to what's there just in the dialogue. I like hearing this. <laughs> I have endless arguments with my editor about holding shots. Well, you are correct in holding them. <laughs> thank you. All right, well, I want to thank you very much for your time and wonderful film. And again, I wish it was longer. Thank you so much. That was filmmaker Errol Morris. His new documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel, is currently streaming on Apple TV+. I need to take one last quick break, and then I'll return with David Cornwell's sons, Simon and Stephen. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. In The Pigeon Tunnel, David Cornwell recalls growing up with a conman father and sometimes having his toys repossessed along with the furniture. Now, these are not hard luck stories. Graham Greene said, and I quote him often, childhood is the credit balance of the writer. It's not a lament. It's just a self-examination. Since memory is a part of the documentary, I asked Cornwell's sons if they had a favorite memory of their father. Simon answered first, followed by Stephen. I think for me, the, the memories that are in some ways closest uh, are right at the end of his life, because that was when we, we spent um, a lot of time with him. And um, he, uh, so yes, I mean, I, I remember, you know, during the, during the pandemic, so not long after we'd shot the interview and a few months before, as it turned out, eventually he died. He and uh, our stepmother Jane were kind of isolating, and uh, Jane was was not very well. She had she had cancer, was in and out of hospital, and we could only really see m my dad in 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 the garden. I remember long conversations at uh, opposite ends of the garden table, safely distanced from each other, where. He was reflecting on on this uh, this interview, worrying about his wife. It was a uh, oddly beautiful, beautiful time. But I should have happy memories from when we were growing up. Maybe you've got some of those. Uh, I know. I, I mean, I, again, I, <laughs> I the interesting thing about Dad was that he was very present, and so I think you have recent memory of him because he lived so much in the now, and the relationship went on in very close ways through his life. I remember in the last you know, 10 years or so of his life, we were working very closely together, the three of us. I remember, you know, he loved to go on walks and talk, you know, long walks with him on Hampstead Heath or down in Cornwall, walking and talking and just 
of, of all the subjects always in the present again like you know what's going on in the world what he's up to what we're up to what family is up to what's happening politically we're always hugely live conversations what do you think about elections what do you think about that you know i used to stay with him a lot in london when we were working together he had a big house and we would cohabit and i remember him as if i was a teenager calling in the evenings to us when I would be home <laughs> and what I'd like for dinner. And I remember also staying with him a memory that I loved and was very charming. And part of the day is he'd always make tea in the morning and the sound of him bringing a tea tray upstairs and knocking on my door and uh, bringing me a cup of tea and then wanting to talk about the day. <laughs> well, very things I hold very fondly of him. Yes. And, and you know, just just so it said, he was a wonderful dad when we were growing up, and he loved to to tell stories. He would often draw pictures as he told stories. He was a, a great artist as well as a, a as a writer. In fact, I think, you know, before he began writing, he was illustrating books and so on. So he made a a, a, a very real and actually very successful effort to be a good father with a with a capital G. So it was great. But I, I think. It sounds like for both of us, the, in, in some ways, the, the, the most precious memories are, are some of the closer ones. And unlike a lot of children, you actually had an opportunity to work with your father adapting some of his work. And what was that process like in the sense of was he very open to, you know, having his work adapted to a different medium? Was he like very kind of closely watching and concerned with how it came across? I mean, what's interesting about working together, I think both Simon and I, you know, it was in a way for us, we waited to the moment in our lives when we could work together with him, having had careers and having had, having the confidence and the history ourselves to be able to work together in a very value added way, right? Let's put, yeah, that, that we, we um, so it was very organic and very, again, it, something we all wanted to do. And on that level was very positive. He's a very exacting person, right? I, I don't mean that about being difficult to work with in any kind of ego way, but his, as you know from his novels, you know, his standards and his expectations and his pressure on himself and others to do their best was constant and above all on himself. You know, to work with him on adaptation, I think within that, and something that I think he'd really discovered, certainly by the time we were working with him, was that adaptation is also, for an author, a process of empowerment, right? That that he is handing on something he created in one medium to creators in another medium and empowering that and, and in a sense, enabling and letting things go into that space. He recognized that new level of authorship was essential to great adaptation. Yes, I think that's right. But at the same time, he loved to interrogate. I mean, and by that, I mean, interrogate the the, the work. And I, I think, you know, he loved the idea of his, his work being the starting point for somebody else's creative process. I think he, he found that thrilling. I think he was also constantly are we thinking about it the right way? Is there a different angle here? I see where you're going, but have you thought of this and that? So it's a very live dialogue. And by the way, very one that's very reflective of his own process. I mean, if you look at his 
manuscripts, you'll see it's constantly, constantly revising. I mean, he worked by hand, so you have the paper trail through his books, and he's constantly, constantly interrogating his own work, asking whether the most precise nuance is what he wanted to achieve or or not. And I think in a big, in in the best of ways, I mean, he was empowering people, he was letting go, but that didn't stop him asking the question. So it was a very um, yeah, and a live process, surely. And for him, and I think it's, I'm sure it's true of many authors and certainly creative people in any area, the piece of, the, the book we read is definitive for us because it's a published book. But for him, it was where he happened, it was the last draft he happened to write, right? And he would have caused, that's where he stopped and felt it was ready for consumption and reading. But story was always fluid for him so it, again the idea of exploring things in adaptation of saying i can see that that would work i could see this would work i might have tried that myself or oh, i did that and it didn't work were all things that were very fluid to him they weren't threatening at all well also it seems interesting that his books are both very set in a specific time but also have these kind of timeless themes and when you are adapting them decades after they were written it seems like it's an opportunity to play with those elements. I, I think that's very much right. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, a very sort of current example in our lives as we're doing an, an adaptation, with a, an adaptation at the moment of the television of uh, his book, A Most Wanted Man, which was written and, and indeed the movie was set in a very specific point in time in the aftermath of 9-11 and of American government behavior around that time and Guantanamo and, and everything else. And the extraordinary thing is that shifting that story into the present day, setting it in, in the world we're living in now after the invasion of the Ukraine and, and so on, is you find in an eerie way the story is actually more relevant today and more resonant today than it even was when he wrote it. So it is an eerie process. And an easy thing to forget about him because he was a best-selling author for 60 years is that he always or almost always wrote in the present right so that you know when he was wrote this biography from the cold he was a 31 or two year old angry young man so to speak when and he was writing about the world around him he didn't he wasn't writing a period novel about the cold war which is what we tend to think of it being right. today so sometimes letting things live in period and sometimes bringing them into the present when it looks at adaptation as its own merits. But what you find is that the themes and the characters, you know, they live absolutely in the present, even if they're period pieces now. How do you feel the Pigeon Tunnel seeing, you have seen the finished film, I'm assuming. Probably a hundred times, <laughs> yes. In watching it, how do you feel it captured your father? Are you seeing him as you remember him? Are you seeing a different side of him? How do you feel it captures who he was? I think it absolutely captures a lot of him. And it captures things or reflects things that I haven't seen reflected in interview or in conversation with him before that is in any sense being public. You know, that I think that it captures someone exploring their own or speaking to their own creativity in ways that are really unique and I think reflect 
a relationship with Errol Morris that was very profound in the, in the, in the context of the conversation and the journey that Errol went on and in their respective stories, in a way, within that conversation. I think it reflects a study of self and where his creative voice was came from, both in his own childhood and his youth, and also in more immediate sense from the world around him. For me, writing is a journey of self-discovery every time. How characters behave, how they emerge, who they are, what appetites they have, they deliver themselves on the blank page and they tell me a little bit about who I am. In writing about George Smiley, of course I'm writing about the ideal father I never had. These are attempts at self-knowledge. Little glimpses along the way of who one really is. I have never submitted to analysis. I feel if I knew any secrets about myself, I'd deprive myself of writing. And there's an honesty of emotional exposure, which is very unique, I think, and very profound. He wanted a great conversation. He had huge respect for Errol. The way it came together was very organic. And there is something deeply reflective of him in the way that he you know, is found in the film. I think that's right. I mean, I think you, you see an awful lot of aspects to him. Uh, I think the, the wit of the humanity and the, the way that he grew out of, you know, a pretty, I mean, he makes light of it. He always expresses gratitude for it, but the way that he grew out of what actually is a pretty horrendous childhood um, into something that, uh, where he could he could express himself properly and where he could unleash this you know extraordinary creativity you know i think you see a lot of that in the, you see many many aspects of him in the interview on the one hand is often trying to control the narrative maybe to shape what errol perceives of him and i think you know and at the same time i think he's also prepared to let go and actually wants to explore with Errol things he hasn't uh, talked about with other people. And I think it's an extraordinary portrait. And I'm just curious, were you present while Errol was interviewing your father or was that done kind of in private? No, we were. it was certainly not done in private. There was probably a hundred person crew and five <laughs> cameras. And so there was, there was a distinct lack of privacy. <laughs> <laughs> but we were there, yes, throughout the uh, the four or five days of the shoot. So it was important to our dad that we were there as well, because precisely because he does expose quite a lot of himself, and it is uh, you know he, he put himself in some some quite vulnerable positions. So he and he did it deliberately, but having the support around him, you know, our stepmother Jane was was also there throughout. So I think he, uh, you know, when we we took breaks in the interview, he could go for a walk in the gardens of the beautiful house where we shot the and um, uh, decompress a little. I think that was important for him. And I was just curious what that interview process looked like watching it. I mean, what kind of an interviewer was Errol Morris? And did you like see how he was kind of... It's interesting because they both... I mean, he opens the film with your dad talking about, you know, interrogation. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I, th I think our, our dad, I think, prepared in some ways meticulously for combat. Uh, and that's what you saw at the at, at the start of the uh, 
uh, of the interview. I mean, I, you know, I think he'd watched pretty much everything that Errol had ever made. Uh, he'd read a lot of what Errol had written. He was he was there, ready to do battle. Usually, I have absolutely no idea of where to begin, but you gave me an idea of where to begin. And what was that? You asked me about the nature of our relationship. It went further than that, I think. It said, who are you? This is a performance art. You need to know whether you're performing to the trade union, an elite audience. You need to know something about the ambitions of the people you're talking to. And if I can't answer that question, not that I won't, but maybe I can't, then we'll struggle on and find out who you are. Then Errol begins the interview, and what Errol wants is a conversation. He wants to open things up, and I, and, uh, I, I think it was uh, it was rather wonderful, actually. The the sort of um, the premise on which our, our dad had kind of gone into the interview was almost instantly undermined, and and then you know the beauty of it was that then the real conversation began, and I think it very much isn't an interrogation. It's it's two hugely gifted, intelligent men who've lived through the same great beats of history, reflecting, exploring, going on a journey together. And I, you know, and I think it's, it's wonderful in that respect. So it would be lovely to talk about Errol the Inquisitor, the investigator, unmasking the spy would be the easy way through it. But what we have is so much more than that, and and it's it's fun. What's what's interesting, particularly watching the movie with an audience right, and different audiences, is that every time I watch the film, you realize that there's something new about our dad that I discover, but there's also something new I would discover about Errol, and also the skill, if you want to call it skill, and I think it's that Errol has, in terms of just following the lines of that conversation. And, and as Simon says, not making an interrogation, but making an exploration. And in a sense of both of them, of each other, right? And, and that it is really a sharing and that Errol gives a lot of himself in exchange for a lot of David. And it's, and it's a very natural and symbiotic connection they have. I think that's right. And I think from Errol's point of view, or, or as I perceive it, of, of Errol, it's a very personal film for Errol. I mean, it's it's also a journey through his own past and his own childhood. And uh, you know, Errol lost lost his father at a very early age. So I think in in some ways was you know on, on his own search for for family for childhood and grappling with many of the same questions about history and objective truth and. The accessibility of objective truth. I mean, these are these are things that have obsessed Errol throughout his career, and um, so you know, I'd, I think it is it's a coming together of two great minds. Um, you know, both uh, yeah, and and two people that find in different ways find fable in the kind of chaos of the world around them, right? That, 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 and, and our dad ultimately found those stories in a landscape of his imagination born of that world. And Errol finds his stories within the context of the reality of that world. But there's a lot of intersection of 
they find they find form within the chaos to, to tell the story. Well, I want to thank you both very much for talking about your father and about the film. Thank, well, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> that was Simon and Stephen Cornwell talking about their father, David Cornwell, who's better known to the world by his pen name of John Le Carre. Simon and Stephen produced the Errol Morris documentary on their father, The Pigeon Tunnel, which is currently streaming on Apple TV+. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend, because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. You can find more of my work at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.